0: Blaze Radio Network. And now, the Rabbi Daniel Lappen show. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin, on demand, on
1: the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, happy warriors. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lapin show, where I, your rabbi, reveals how the world really works. And one way that the world really works, and this is of relevance, whether you are trying to build up your finances, whether you are looking to get married, whether you're looking to strengthen marriage, whether you're raising children, um, whether you're beyond that point, almost everybody has an interest in becoming a bigger better, and more powerful person. Why? Because you can read as many books on leadership as you like, and you will be wasting your time if you do not possess any inner greatness. And the reason for this is that we human beings, all of us, are equipped almost from birth, from toddlerhood, with an infallible and reliable um, detector of uh, inauthenticity, a phony detector. And um, and you just cannot employ tricks out of leadership books to try and con people into, oh, we should follow him because he knew how to press our buttons. No. Uh, deep down, we need to follow people uh, wh- whom in whom we sense a bigness. They are Bigger people than us, they're better people than us, and they are worthy of being followed. And anybody who's had any experience in the military knows that every now and then in the military you come across an officer, you come across a leader, you come across a man who has who exudes this. He just radiates. It, it, it's somebody who has achieved this level of greatness and you say to yourself you know i'm I'd, i'll follow him anywhere and this invariably comes from conquering the inner self rather than the world around i think it was the english poet john milton who said about Oliver Cromwell, the uh, leader of the revolution, the civil war in England in the middle of the 17th century, uh, I think it was, uh, it was the poet Milton who said that, and I, I don't have the exact words, I wish I could because they'd be memorable, but uh, I don't have them at the tip of my fingers. But what he said was that before Cromwell ever went out onto the field of battle to conquer his enemies, he had already triumphed in the inner battle of conquering himself and so uh, this is remarkably effective. Uh, the idea that you can somehow become a leader with your with your family, with your children, with your business, with your associates and employees, and friends, the idea that you can be influential among others uh, without having achieved inner dominance is completely false. And, and you just think about it while I'm talking. Think of all the phonies you know. Oh, there are people who employ power to coerce compliance from you. There's no question about that. But that's not leadership. That's not inspirational in any way whatsoever. Um, take a look at uh, this verse. I'm, I'm using the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Recommended Bible, and I'm on page 2113 in the book of Ruth. And uh, page 2113 in the book of Ruth, uh, fairly early on, chapter one in the book of Ruth, verse, um, let's look at verse, um, here we go, verse seven. And, uh, you know, I always like saying that everybody needs a rabbi, right? And that's not just because I am eager to, to make sure there is full employment for rabbis particularly this one Uh, but it's that there are certain insights that are only accessible in the original hebrew text which my mission is to make available to you in ways that can be practically employed in your family in your faith in your finances in your friendships And yes, in your physical fitness, right? Because if you can't lead yourself, you certainly won't be able to lead anyone else. And leading yourself means being able to do things that the lower part of your body doesn't want to do. Maybe that's exercise or dieting or many, many other things. But um, uh, here's how it sounds in the Hebrew, and I know that few of you understand the Hebrew, but there is a certain rhythm and tempo to the sound of the Hebrew, uh, which can be enjoyed and appreciated in the same way that uh, complex pieces of music I can enjoy, even though I don't know anything at all about the music theory behind them. So, So, uh, um, uh, So, here's what's going on. Um, Naomi is alone with her two uh, daughters-in-law in the land of Moab. And she decides she has to go home to the land of Israel. And uh, the English reads as follows. So she went out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they took the road to return to the land of Judah. Now, here's what's interesting. In Hebrew, verbs uh, indicate a great deal. They indicate uh, gender and they also indicate the number, whether it's singular or plural. So um, I might say he went home to uh Uh, Fresno I could also say they went home but from the verb went you wouldn't know anything at all in the Hebrew it's quite different and the way uh, I will now translate the Hebrew verse accurately goes something like this Um, and she meaning Naomi left the place singular Naomi left the place where she had been and her two daughters-in-law were with her So, who's actually the driving force here? Who's the leadership? Nomi. They're just with her. It doesn't say Nomi and her two daughters-in-law left the place where they were in Moab and started the journey back to Judah. No. And Nomi went, and then almost as an afterthought in that end of the first phrase of the sentence, verse 7, and her two daughters-in-law were with her. Like They didn't know what else to do, so they hung with their mother-in-law. She's going on a journey. They'll go on a journey. But then time goes by. The second part of the sentence reads, And they went on the journey purposefully to return to the land of Judah. But now the they is a plural. And so something very important has happened. And that is that when this all started, Naomi had not yet inspired her two daughters-in-law with a vision of returning back to God's land, to the land of Judah. And so she went, and they accompanied her. They were her daughters-in-law. They were widows. Life had been very rough on them. They went along. But as the journey progressed, and they were able to grasp more of the enormous greatness of this woman, Naomi, and as the rest of the book of Ruth progresses, we become exposed to more and more of the inner greatness of this extraordinary woman who merits to be the great-grandmother of King David himself. And so here we see a little bit of an insight of what happens. There may be people who'll go with you no matter where, because they don't have much of an alternative, you know, they'll go with you. And that means it's your spouse, it's your children, it's your co-workers, uh, it, it might be a military unit, but whatever, people will go with you. But if you achieve real greatness, why, everything changes. Now they have been captivated by your vision and they are now really going with you they're part of it they're not just accompanying you because they have nothing better to do they have been inspired by you this is just a little bit of a glimpse of what achieving greatness means and what uh, Milton meant when he spoke about Oliver Cromwell on the battlefield and it's what the the rest of this show and some future shows uh, will be devoted to as well you see uh, there's a book that we published. We sought out the expert in this area. In Hebrew, uh, the area is known as Musar, and that is the, uh, the area of working on yourself for the purpose of making yourself a bigger human being. And um, we sought out a, a wonderful woman uh, called Ruchi Koval, and we worked with her to write a book, and she wrote a terrific book. It's called Soul Construction, and um, if, if you haven't seen it yet, you owe it to yourself because this is the start. Getting this book in front of you is the start of perhaps one of the most exciting adventures you've ever undertaken, and that is the adventure of battling with yourself, the adventure of extracting more from yourself than you ever thought you were capable of. And This book, Soul Construction, and I'm going to interview uh, Ruchi right now, and I'm going to do my very best to ask her the questions you would like to ask her, and uh, and for you to get to understand this very first but crucial step on the the journey towards self-development in the ultimate, what it really, really means. And so uh, the book is called Soul Construction. And and here's the best part of it. You can go to our website at rabbi daniel com, and uh, you're able to to get it as a book. Let's say you want it as a, an ebook download. You can get it as well. Let's say you want it in audible form. You can do that also. Let's say you want it on your Kindle. Well, you can do that as well. Uh, you can get this book in any way you want. You can get it mailed to you as a soft cover book. Or you can download it and start work on it literally just as soon as we finish the interview so um, please be aware of this and uh, and waste no time in 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 going to rabbi daniel dot com and looking up the book Soul Construction as in constructing your soul right your inner soul that's really what we're talking about a great title for a great book and a great author she's terrific and uh, she really uh, lays it out in a way that frankly um, she did it better than I could have done and um, and as you know I'm blessed with a fairly robust ego uh, but that doesn't mean I can't recognize that she wrote a book I could not have written And it's a necessary book, and it's a book that I have derived value from as well. So uh, sit back. No, don't sit back. Sit forward, energized, intent, with laser-like focus, and uh, listen to Ruchi Koval, who I have the pleasure of speaking to for the next few minutes. And at the end of it, I'll be back to wrap things up. Welcome, Ruchi Koval. Great to have you back here again. How you been doing?
0: Thank you so much. It's great to be back.
1: Um, uh, it's been a few months since uh, the launch of your book and uh, the last time we spoke on this podcast.
0: Yeah, I think about half a year. Hard to believe.
1: How's your life changed in the uh, in the interim?
0: Oh, I mean, dramatically. I'm now uh, world famous. You know, it's wonderful.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I I know you're being um, uh, given a uh, a cavalcade of, of fan mails fa- and fan letters that uh, cascade down on you. Anything interesting that, that, that you've picked up? Like what do you what do you like hearing from people when people come up to you and say, "Oh, I can't believe it! You wrote Soul Construction. I can't tell you what differences it's made to our life." Like, what are the, what are some of the things you hear and how do you react?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I would say two things, really. The first thing that I absolutely love to hear, and this might be surprising, is when people say that I haven't finished reading your book yet because I just can't swallow it all at once. There's so much there. It's so dense that I want to read it slowly and really let it sink in and reread parts and share with my family and friends. That is so gratifying to me as an author to hear that. And I'm like, take all the time you need because it really is. I mean, in a sense, it's a you know it's a small book, but it's so it's so dense and there's so much there. And so I don't want somebody to just zip through it. I want it to really sink in. So that is the first type of feedback that I love. And I've heard that from a lot of people. That seems to be a theme and a trend. So and that was not something that I had expected to hear. So that's that's very gratifying. The second thing that I love to hear is this book has changed my life. And I also have heard that so many times. Now, you know, when I was writing the book, that's what I felt. I mean, that's what I that's why I wrote it, because I know that there's life-changing wisdom that I have received from others um, that many people just don't have access to or don't know exists. And the fact that I have the ability to transmit this to others is just mind-blowing. But, you know, when you're writing a book, you become so enmeshed in the content that you sometimes lose the, you know, forest for the trees and you forget how life altering it is because you're busy dealing with sentence structure and chapter organization. And so after the book was written and I kind of took a step back and then people started reading it and then they're like, this book has changed my life. I'm like, oh, yes, exactly. Exactly. That's why I wrote it. That's why this content was so powerful to me. That's why I share it with others. And so when I hear that, I'm like, okay, that's why I did what I did exactly for this purpose.
1: Don't you love it when people tell you the book's all marked up and it's got posted notes in it and highlighted sections? Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. I love that. And actually, here's my book. And it's got multiple bookmarks and all kinds of things that I want to share with people, different classes that I'm teaching it in. And um, I love that, you know, and I, uh, I, I, that's what I want it to be. You know, some people feel like, oh, you're not allowed to write in a book. I'm like, no, no, no. Write in the book, underline, highlight, bookmark, by all means, like make it yours.
1: Exactly. Just it's just a library book. You shouldn't write in. That's all.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think because it's like a a spiritual text, I think sometimes people feel it would be disrespectful to write in it. But you know, the point is not to read it. The point is to study it. So by all means, you know, it should be done that way.
1: Um, you know, I've I've seen um, Chumashim Bibles and also uh, volumes of the Talmud uh, that were owned. And and studied lovingly and diligently by by prominent sages of the past, that are densely packed with marginal notes in a pencil handwriting.
0: Yeah, so, um, that's great. In fact, some of the some of the texts that I teach, some of the ancient wisdom, my books are so marked and underlined and, and noted that I, I sometimes I'm a little scared that I should never lose this volume because that information is not anywhere. It's not in any cloud, you know. So. It's these these uh, books become very precious because they're very much yours with your notes, your reflections and your, you know, comments. So it's very personal and very important. I
1: mean, the, the book, um, the book's remarkable. And I, too, have because we published it. I keep on hearing from people how life changing it has become. Um, it's it, it's really it provides a window into your own soul, a window into your own makeup. And, um, and and encourages an introspection that is is almost unknown in popular culture today.
0: Yeah, you know it's so interesting you say that because I think that a lot of self a lot of self help books have this sort of undertone or almost like an unspoken caveat. Do this in order to get what you want. Um, this book is about do this to become the greatest version of yourself. And PS, your life will become much more satisfying and gratifying, and the lives of the people that you know will become more satisfying and gratifying. But this is not about self-gratification. This is about self-transformation. And I think that speaks to the introspection that you mentioned earlier, that when the purpose is to change me, then looking into myself with a critical eye, it can be an uncomfortable process. It's not yeah. something that people are gonna do without a little coaching. So it's almost like you need a guide to, to show you how to do it because we wouldn't naturally go there of our own accord.
1: A lot of people who travel for business uh, get asked the same question by me every time, which is uh, when you walk into the hotel room um, and, take off your coat and uh, put down your suitcase how long before you turn on the television set? And uh, and the answer reflects I think an unwillingness that many people have, many of us have an unwillingness to think as long as there's a barrage of outside stimulation I don't have to think and if I think I, I have to think about myself and peer into my own soul and uh and and ask me what i think of me hmm. uh having the tv on really takes away a lot of that um how do you get by that both in your personal coaching and counseling and and also in the book how do you get past uh, the sort of frightening moment of i'm i'm going to have to confront certain realities about myself
0: yeah Hmm. Well, I find in a way that Musser is almost like a self-filtering process, that people who are attracted to it are people who are willing to go there. Um, And if they're not, then when they discover some of the benefits of practicing Musser, then they become willing to go there, even if they're not. Um, I actually saw this in real time in a class that I was teaching yesterday. There was a woman who was sharing a difficulty that she was having with her sister-in-law. Um, and it was during her son's bar mitzvah and things didn't go the way she hoped. And there were a lot of hurt feelings and she didn't know what to do. And she, she questioned to the group, should she confront her sister-in-law? So I, we were studying my book and I, I took out the book and I read from the chapter on speech about rebuke and about whether it, it whether and how it's appropriate to give another person rebuke. And I, I just read, read to her, I actually just read opened the book and it opened to this page, <laughs> which happens sometimes, and I just opened to page 100, and I said, well, you know, the Torah teaches us about when and how we're supposed to give rebuke, and when and how we're not supposed to give rebuke. Um, so the first thing I shared, first, the rebuke must be offered for the well being of the other person. So we just stopped right there. And she thought to herself, and I could, just, I could see that she was struggling. She's a newer participant to Musser. and I could see that she really wanted to say that it was for the well-being of the other person, and I watched her grapple with this honesty, and then she said, "I don't think it's for the well-being of the other person."
1: Oh my goodness! And
0: oh, <laughs> her a parade. Right. So I think that studying, you know, muster on the one hand puts you in a position where you're willing to engage in that process um, and also starting the process, right? Just sitting in that group and, and that's why studying muster in a group is so powerful because it's a very safe, peer supportive setting where you know that if you engage in that introspection, nobody is going to come down hard on you, but rather they'll congratulate you, which is exactly what happened. We're engaging in that difficult process. So,
1: you know, what what self awareness she had to be able to recognize yeah. that she was perhaps going to be deriving a little bit too much pleasure from rebuking someone else?
0: Exactly.
1: Extraordinary. Uh, listen, Ruki, we're 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 throwing around the term musar, uh, which lies at the heart of the book, and it's it's something you've been a specialist in for many years already. Um, but uh, uh, there are going to be people who are going to be joining us on this discussion, and uh, it's going to be a new term. Mm -hmm. Explain it.
0: Okay. I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) So, uh, musar is a Hebrew word that appears in the Bible many times, um, very much popularized by King Solomon, um, and technically translated, it means moral instruction or moral discipline. Um, what it means as a movement, as popularized by Rabbi Israel Salanter in the 1800s, is that putting oneself through a process of moral discipline, particularly by studying character traits and engaging in that kind of vulnerable introspection that you mentioned earlier. So character traits such as kindness, such as love, such as generosity, each one of my chapters in the book is a character trait. So acceptance, generosity, silence, you know, things we don't necessarily typically think of as character traits. So Musar is using the study of those character traits to bring oneself to a higher state of spirituality. Or put more succinctly, it's the belief that focusing, studying, and improving one's character traits. Can be a primary path to becoming a better person.
1: So, uh, when when somebody like Dale Carnegie <clears throat> um, wrote "Winning Friends and Influencing People," and uh, you know, and I'm I'm not picking on on Dale Carnegie, and I'm not putting him down. Uh, there is much of value in that book. But um, but it's it's very goal oriented. Do these things so as this will happen. As you spoke a little earlier, you you, you alluded to that as well. Yeah. Um, the 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 re the reason that good things follow in the footsteps of somebody who embarks on a a Musar program of introspection. Um, is that the person becomes, as you said, the best version of themselves. Uh, the the person becomes a bigger person and a a person of greater character, and this is something that is perceptible. Uh, most of us recognize it, even if we can't always put a name to it, or we can't necessarily articulate what it is that we're seeing in somebody. But it's making ourselves, making of ourselves, greater people. Am I, am I on the right track there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you mentioned Dale Carnegie's book because one time, I think this goes back 10 years, one of the women in one of my study groups asked me about that book and said, aren't the principles very similar to Musser? It's about respecting people. It's about putting them first. Um, and I suggested, and we did this for about a year, we used Dale Carnegie's book as a Musser text but with each lesson, we teased out what he is saying to do and why he is saying to do it. So what he is saying to do is absolutely congruent with the principles of Musser. Why he's saying to do it is not. So in Musser, we do kind, respectful, spiritually evolved, humble things hmm. in order to, the way I like to put it, to polish our inner diamond, to become the most beautiful version of me. Now, sometimes that might positively impact other people in real time. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes it will more positively impact me in real time. Sometimes it won't. That's secondary. The point is that I have been put here on this earth with a soul, a soul that is God given. And I have to give that soul back with interest that at the end of my life, I have to be able to say to God, I made good on the investment that you gave me. I am giving you a return on your investment. You put me here with raw materials and unpolished diamond, and I'm giving you back a refined transformed version of me. Whereas in Dale Carnegie's book, right? I am doing these things Some of them are quite manipulative.
1: Very. Yes, you're right.
0: Right. I am doing these things so that grandma will leave me the car in her will so that I have a chance to become the partner of this company. That part's not Musser. And it can be it can be so hard to pin down because sometimes like successful business practices might look like Musser. How do you know you're practicing Musser when nobody else can tell what you're doing? but you know that you have done something great. I'll give you an example. Let's say that you are standing in a group of friends and everybody's chit-chatting and all of a sudden some gossipy conversation comes up, right? And a part of you wonders if you should say something but you know that this crowd will never be able to hear you. So you very silently and humbly just sort of kind of slip away and mix into the crowd and join a different conversation. That is like classic Musser. Nobody will know. Nobody will say, wow, you're so courageous. You're so brave. You're so strong. Nobody knows. It's internal. It's that's internal greatness. Sometimes it's only, you know, and God knows, but you know, like I share in my Musser classes, that stuff can't help but leak inevitably it will impact other people positively. Inevitably it will impact you positively, but that's not why you're doing it. You're not doing it for this manipulative goal-oriented purpose. You're doing it for transformation.
1: Internal transformation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so actually I shouldn't say that inevitably it will impact you positively. It will always impact you positively. What I'm saying is that often other people might not discern your growth right away. Or might not appreciate it right away but it will and and that's why like at the end of each chapter in the book i share a testimonial by somebody who's been practicing with her, and very often that's what they say like my friends and family just started asking me what are you doing because this is amazing
1: right yeah i mean just the example you gave earlier <clears throat> just a woman, or a man for that matter, restraining themselves from letting fly at a family member or a colleague because they've got a little Musser safety latch in their mouth that says, hold on a sec, are you doing this because you're trying to make everything better, or is there a part of you that just wants to let this person have it? I mean, to even stop yourself, to that's a huge step forward in self-control it's remarkable.
0: Absolutely and so rare. So countercultural.
1: You know I'm a guy and um we're uh, as as you well know we're sort of more we're results oriented. You know we we want to know okay how does this work how does this do how does this help and And I've had to sort of slow down in this conversation a little bit and hear what you're speaking about, which is the polishing of the jewel.
0: Yeah. And, you know, part of, I think part of the challenge of Musser is the patience that it requires, which is, of course, a character trait unto itself. Um, But we do live in a results-oriented society. Everybody wants to see the product. Everybody wants to see the bottom line. You know, and this process... It doesn't work like that it takes real growth takes real time it's like a slow cooking stew there's no shortcut to a slow cooking stew you know and so um
1: or becoming a racing driver looking at it from my perspective
0: okay (laughs) exactly um
1: you you gotta you it takes time there is no there's no other there's no fast track
0: yeah Yeah. And it's not really about the results. Actually, it's really about the process because the truth is that we never are in control of the results. God is, God is in control of the results, right? We might decide to slip away from that conversation that I was mentioning earlier. And somebody might actually see us and make fun of us for that. Somebody might say, I noticed you walked away. What's the matter with you? You're too good for us now, you know? And so we might actually get backlash sometimes for our desire to grow and do better. That's not in our hands. That's, that's God's department. What I'm in charge of is the process, you know, and I think that if we can go to bed at night and kind of review our day and think to ourselves, I did good today. I'm proud of me today. That's where the growth is. That's how you chart your progress.
1: I was, I was as tough on me as I am on the people who report to me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think that as a society, we're very good at admitting our faults out loud, but I think a lot of them ruminate over that in private. And I think one of the, one of the most incredible benefits of Musser is that even if I think you know, at the end of my day that I'm not proud of how I handled certain things, one thing I can say for sure is that I am working on it. I am doing what I can to make myself a better person. And very often what I try to do is I try to turn my regrets into goals. So when I'm, you know, trying to fall asleep at night and there goes my brain on the hamster wheel, you know, and I'm like, why did I do this? Why did I do that? I'd say, okay, I'm gonna set a goal. What do I wanna do differently tomorrow? You know, and actually the Musser masters would advise serious goal setting and tracking of one's progress. Mm -hmm. You know, a serious student of Musser, I haven't ever really engaged in this practice in a formal capacity, but serious students of Musser would have a Musser journal. And they would track, they would set a particular character trait for X amount of time. They would review their progress each night. And they would, the same way a company will track their growth or whatever, they would they would track their growth. I mean, that's really the ideal and way to We do used it.
1: to call it a chesh bon ha-nefesh, a, uh, 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 the equivalent of a financial statement of the condition of, of your own soul.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that can be a scary thing to chart, you know, because sometimes we're not necessarily sure we want to know (laughs) you know Uh, the same uh, way my my kids who are young adults they're like scared to look at their bank statement online you know they're like (laughs) (laughs) so sometimes we don't necessarily want to face that but it must be done
1: um what do you think are the differences between teaching musar now in 2022 uh from perhaps doing so in 1957
0: Well, um, I wasn't alive in 1957.
1: Yeah, Uh, sorry, I didn't, not for one moment was I trying to imply that you
0: were. (laughs) No, I didn't think so.
1: No, I I just, uh, America, life in America has changed dramatically since the 1960s. Um, And I'm-
0: Well, I mean, I can even contrast it from when I started doing this 20 years ago. I've seen a change. Even better,
1: please do, yes.
0: Um, I find the biggest difference is that the reason I started teaching Musser, honestly, is because I found that it was one of the easiest entry points for people to study spirituality, meaning even if people weren't entirely sure what they believed about God or a higher power, but everybody could get around the concept of trying to be a better person. What I find now is that while that's still true, people are much more into self-esteem self-preservation self-care um and it really sometimes eclipses the other esteem other care so for example if i'm talking about kindness it used to be self-understood that when you're talking about kindness you're talking about kindness to others now inevitably it will come up in a class but don't forget to be kind to yourself which is true and I'll go there and I'll talk about that. But it's a change. It's a shift. I'm not necessarily saying that it's a negative shift because every character trait is inherently neutral and can be taken to any negative extreme. A person can be so into giving to others that they ignore themselves and they burn out and that's not healthy either. But they're just there is something about it that rubs me the wrong way. I I haven't completely finished defining it in my head. Um, I do think that, you know, self-care, self-care is a great example. Self-care wasn't a word when I started teaching (laughs) Masur, And I I think that Mm. there is a bit of a distortion with what self-care means. Judaism and in general, like it's not self-care is not a spiritual concept unto itself. I don't need to take care of me just because I need to take care of me. I need to take care of me so that I can be the best me to be of service in this universe.
1: And so um, w- when when somebody says to you, um, look. Uh, I
0: perform my responsibilities and I do.
1: Yes. When, when somebody says to you, um, uh, well, isn't it, isn't it selfish that I'm focusing so much attention on my inner self and on my soul? You know, what about the environment and what about all the poor people in the world? Surely my time should go on that.
0: Well, I mean, that's hardly mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're the very same thing, right? Right. It says in the Torah that God wants us to be responsible stewards of this earth that he gave us. So that just ties into my character trait of responsibility. And it says in the Torah that a person should work on their generosity and not shut down their heart to the cries of the needy. So, me being generous or me focusing on my character traits is actually a service to the universe. So those are not mutually exclusive things. Paying attention to my inner world is actually the most selfless thing I can do, because if God put me on this planet, he has expectations of me and he wants me to fulfill a certain purpose. And if not, if I'm not paying attention to my inner world, chances are what I'm going to do, like many people on this planet is just run around paying attention to my outer world my materialism and my bottom line and my bank account and my kids and whatever I, you know, need to accomplish for my own ego, for my own pride by paying attention to my inner world. That's how I am serving the rest of the world in the best possible way.
1: Right. And, um, yeah, now I get that completely. That makes perfect sense, of course. And, uh, um, one of the things that's that's been um, a focus of mine lately, <clears throat> uh, which I think you might be able to shed some very helpful light on, is that, um, uh, and even just this morning, actually, I was talking to a young man who, who said to me, I was talking to him about his life path, where he's headed, and he said, uh, well, what I really want to happen is this. And I stopped him and I said, look, uh, one of the key things in understanding how the world really works is to know that um, we don't get the life we want. We get the life that flows naturally from the actions that we take. And so, generally speaking, when, when we make mistakes in our path, and uh, we either do things that take us off our desired path or we fail to do the things that we need to do for this desired path um it's usually not because we didn't know that we shouldn't do that thing or we didn't know that we should do this thing it's that we lack the the inner strength and so again this may be me being male and results focused or externally focused rather than internally focused but um But help me with how Musar and soul construction uh, can help uh, strengthen my self-discipline and my willpower to stop me doing things that I know I shouldn't be doing and to help me do the things I really know I ought to be doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a great question. And, And I think that it's something that every human being will ultimately struggle with because we all make mistakes. Mistakes are a part of living and mistakes are can be a part of growing if we if we leverage them correctly. So I, I think a big part of the reason why I wrote Soul Construction was to offer the most accessible form of Masr that I knew how. Meaning that even if somebody never heard of Musser before, or they never studied the Bible, or they're they're even not unfamiliar with spiritual wisdom at all that this is something that they could pick up and read. And I include contemporary examples and reference reference to pop culture and psychology, showing how all these things dovetail with the the lessons of Musser. And the reason it was so important for me to do that is because what I've learned over the years of, of teaching Musser and of learning it myself is that when you study something regularly, when you expose yourself to the wisdom of something regularly, it will by default have an impact on you. And so, you know, when you say that, you know, when a person makes a mistake, it's not necessarily because they didn't know, it's because they didn't have the requisite willpower. I I would actually state that just a little bit differently, which is they didn't expose themselves to know, meaning the wisdom is out there. And at this, you know, juncture in history in 2022, there is no excuse to not have wisdom. It's available at the click of your fingers. It's available in, in the phones that are in everybody's pocket. And it's like, if a person doesn't know, it's because they didn't look hard enough. And so it's not just, it's not just the knowing, you know, it's like one of the, one of the most quotable rabbis, one of the Hasidic masters, the Kutzka rabbi, he said that the greatest distance in the world is from the head to the heart. There's knowing in your head, and then there's knowing in your guts, if I can paraphrase, <laughs> there's knowing in your guts. How do you take it from one place to another, right? That's, that's the journey of life. But I don't think it's always about willpower. I think it's about constantly exposing yourself to wisdom and constantly exposing yourself to willpower. There will be something inside of you that increasingly becomes disgusted with negative behavior. So you're setting yourself up for success that, you know, when people start engaging to use my example of earlier, when people start engaging in gossipy behavior, you know, whereas in the past there might've been one side of you that says, Oh, I I shouldn't really talk about this. And then the other side of you will say, Oh, but I really, really, really want to know. Right. But if you've consistently exposed yourself to wisdom, then there will be a new part of you that says, "Ew." I don't, I don't want to hear this. This is going to make me feel gross. And so it becomes visceral. I don't think willpower is enough. I think it's the constant exposure to wisdom that somehow alters your choices so that you have a different new wise voice in your head that didn't used to have a voice.
1: And so the, the Musar Master, if I'm hearing you correctly, the Musar Master – Is not somebody who doesn't feel the temptation to do wrong.
0: Right. right? Correct. Yeah, if you don't have the temptation to do wrong, you're not human.
1: So man man or woman, Musar isn't going to turn you into an angel, is it?
0: No, unfortunately. (laughs) No, but it will open up for you the more angelic side of you that perhaps – you weren't in touch with before, or you didn't know existed.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying the way you're portraying this, because it's, uh, it's very different from the particular approach that uh, our audience is accustomed to from me. And there's there's nothing you say that that I disagree with, but but I love it because you're you're saying it in 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 such a different way and in in so much of a uh, a softer and more um, it's more pleasing and and more acceptable. I, well, I, I I could hear you know there'd be things I think that I would hear in the way you're saying them more comfortably than I would hear in the way that I say them.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you.
1: And I think, I mean, the book really does that. It invites you literally from page to page. It's uh, it's not the sort of book you can read one chapter in and then say, I think I've had enough. That doesn't happen. And, no, uh, yeah.
0: and, and that's also a big part of the reason why I chose to share a lot of my own vulnerabilities and struggles in the book, because I it's so important for people to know that, Access to wisdom doesn't make you perfect. It just makes you better. And so I am not coming at this from this perspective of, which I, I've also seen in some self-help books. Hey, look at me. I figured it all out. Now I'm going to tell it to you. I didn't figure it all out. I have struggled. But, but this wisdom has helped me so much along the way. Mm-hmm. And now when I have a struggle, I, I usually know what I should do. It doesn't always mean it's easy to do. And it doesn't always mean that I do it. But uh, an important part of the book was like for me to show that, you know, I struggle with stuff just like everybody else. I get hurt. I get annoyed. I get angry. Total, th- this type of wisdom is not for people who don't struggle. It's exactly for people who struggle. It's exactly for every human being in the world. And I, I, what I've also found is that my struggles over the years have gotten more refined, meaning something that I used to, you know, grapple with, let's say 20 years ago, I don't grapple with those things anymore. I grapple with, you know, more, I'm not sure how to say it other than more refined, Um, you know, but meaning that. If my struggles have changed, if I can look back and say 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I was struggling with X. I don't struggle with X anymore. I've, I've got that particular challenge nailed. I'm not going to indulge in that behavior anymore. I'm not going to retaliate with other people like that anymore. So I might still struggle with more subtle forms. like I might still find myself carrying a grudge toward that person. I wouldn't say anything to them like I would in the past. right? So again, it doesn't mean that I don't struggle anymore, but it means that my, struggle, um, my struggles have improved. My struggles have become better. So that's, that's just, and I kind of sort of look at it like an elite athlete, right? Like an Olympian. Yeah. So they might not get 100 in their score, but their mistakes are far less egregious than they had been when they, were, than when they were amateurs.
1: So you become a, a professional Musa person, man or woman.
0: Well, it wouldn't really be very Musseri of me to say that I had, but <laughs> that's what I aspire. I and, yes. and again, I'm not, you know, comparing myself against anybody else because yeah. that's another principle of Musser. It's not about where I, you know, it's it's always just about looking at my previous self and saying, have I become a better version of that? So there's no rankings, you know, in this stuff. It's really just saying, have I grown? That's not, it's not that measuring
1: against anybody else. It's measuring yeah. you against you today as opposed to you yesterday. Is that, is that the idea?
0: That is exactly the idea. That is exactly the idea. And, you know, God is not judging me based on anybody else because we all have different starting points. We all come into this world with different advantages and disadvantages, both in terms of nature, nurture, our families, our tendencies. And so all I have for reference is who I used to be.
1: Right. Um, Do you run into with, uh, either with people who've read the book and talked to you or at uh, speeches and appearances or even private clients, um, where does personal insecurity intersect with a MUSA program?
0: Hey, that's a very interesting question. So, The first character trait, because I always think of things in terms of character traits, like the first character trait that pops into my head when you say personal insecurity is the character trait of arrogance. Now, like I said before, every character trait is inherently neutral. And then you have an unhealthy extreme over on this side and an unhealthy extreme over on that side. So a sense of appropriate humbleness That would be the balanced center of this character trait. Then over here on this extreme, you have an exaggerated sense of your own importance. So this is where arrogance comes in. This is where, you know, narcissism, like I wouldn't say narcissism because that actually comes from insecurity, which is the other side. Sometimes they can actually masquerade as each other, but where people just don't think of others, they're always just thinking of themselves. They just do what's good for them. That's arrogance. Over here on this side, we have extreme insecurity, where a person thinks they're nothing, that they don't matter, that nobody cares about them. Both of these unhealthy extremes are essentially obsessed with self. Over here, I'm obsessed with myself because I'm the only important person in the universe. Over here, I'm obsessed with myself because I can't stop thinking about how I'm a nobody.
1: Which is a, it's, it's a weird, distorted form. It's like the mirror image of arrogance in a way, isn't it?
0: Yes, exactly. And they very often manifest in the same way, meaning sometimes people act arrogant because they're so insecure. Hmm. They do not have a healthy sense of self. So the, the healthy middle road is where I know exactly who I am. I'm not overly arrogant because of that. I'm not overly insecure You know, because if you think about like the overly insecure person, right, they walk into a room and they keep thinking, oh, I didn't dress right. Oh, I look weird. Oh, everybody's staring at me. Still exaggerated sense of self. So the healthy balance means I know what my strengths and weaknesses are. I'm not delusional, not not too much, too little. I understand what I have to contribute to this world. And this is, I think, one of the most important points I am perfectly aware of which of my accomplishments and achievements are due to my own hard work and effort, which means I'm absolutely going to take pleasure and pride in that, and which of my accomplishments or achievements are just a gift from God, and for that I have only gratitude. That's what a true, healthy, balanced sense of self looks like. So too much insecurity is actually on the arrogance spectrum.
1: Um, so, Ruchi, as we're speaking, you, you comfortably and naturally uh, drop our relationship with God into the conversation. Yeah. Uh, but you also said earlier, and I think this is true, that the way you present the book, uh, it makes no prere- prerequisite, it it asks no uh, religious uh, declaration of faith Um This is something that you can embark on and learn from whether or not you have already worked out your relationship with God. Is that right or am I wrong?
0: No, that that is absolutely right. And part of the reason why I'm so comfortably talking about God is because I happen to be on a podcast with you. And I know that in this setting, most of the people interacting with this platform are comfortable with God when I speak to audiences who are less confident or secure about what that means for them, I sort of lay lower on the God piece and I focus more on the personal growth piece. Um, And even in the book, the beginning of the book is less God-focused. As we go through the book, I sort of, just as in a relationship with another person, I sort of gradually introduce the God piece And at the, by the end of the book, I'm talking a lot about God, because I do think that it's a process for a person to get to a comfort level. And honestly, in my teaching, I very much, I'm very focused and conscious of who I'm talking to. um, And I'm always sort of calibrating how much or how little I should be focusing on the God piece, because for some people it can really be, you know, a trigger or a touch point. And I don't want to lose the baby with the bathwater. I wouldn't want someone, you know, to reject Musser because they're not sure of their relationship with God. Um, I'll actually share with you something so interesting that I heard on this topic from uh, Alan Morinas. Alan Morinas is, an, I know is. Yeah, he's, he's a brilliant author, and uh, he founded something called the Musser Institute, which is an online place where people can study Musser. Yeah. Um, and he studied from one of the most prominent Musser teachers, Rabbi Yachil Per from Far in New York. Um, And when he first started studying with him, he was a very secular Jew. He had, I think, a PhD in filmmaking and archaeology, very, very accomplished professionally. And
1: is that no longer the case?
0: Uh, Which part?
1: That he's he's not still a secular Jew?
0: Oh, no, he's not. He's a religious Jew today.
1: Oh, how fascinating. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is, Um,
1: Is he still up in Vancouver?
0: He is, yeah. Interesting. So...
1: I should tell you we do have a number of uh, deeply committed, I I almost want to say religious, but deeply committed atheist listeners, and I know because they write to me quite often. And uh, what's great about them is they have no insecurity at all. They're comfortable atheists. and um because of that we're able to communicate and discuss ideas and they are able to raise questions and issues and I'm able to respond to them so i i, I kind of like having them uh as regular listeners of the show because um, for for exactly what you're talking about th- this has to stand on its own it's um it 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 can't require the crutch yeah of, of some uh, predetermined commitment before we embark on the conversation at all.
0: Exactly, exactly. And actually, for many people, I have found that Musser became a bridge which, which with which they could then begin to explore other forms of spiritual, like other connections with God. Whereas without that entry point, I don't know that, I know for a fact that there would not have been an open door. Um, but back to Alan Marinas. So this is exactly what I was saying. So he's studying with this rabbi and he loves Musser, but he doesn't know what he believes about the rest of this stuff. And he asks him, he wrote, he, Alan Marinas wrote in one of his books that he asked Rabbi Per, he goes, so can you take Musser out of the general context of Jewish spiritual wisdom and just have it stand on its own? And Rabbi Per did not give him an answer. And he asked him again at a later date. He didn't give him an answer. And he asked him again at a later date. And finally, Rabbi Parrish says to him, "Alan, if I were to ask you to take the radio out of your car and put it in your kitchen, and that's how you should listen to music, what would you say? So Alan thinks about it. And he says, well, you could, but why would you want to? And he said, here's your answer. Can Musser stand on its own? Yes, it can. But why would you want to extract it from its roots, from its natural habitat, from where it came from? I thought that was fascinating.
1: Very nice, yes. Yeah, very much so. You you have Hasidic blood in you, don't you?
0: I do. I do, yeah, on both sides, actually. One of my great-great-grandparents was a famous Hasidic master. But even I mean even as far back as my grandparents, who are three of, three of whom are Holocaust survivors, they all came from Hasidic homes before the war.
1: Interesting. And um, I grew up in a, uh, in a background that couldn't be more distant from the Hasidic tradition. Um, and it actually was the Musa tradition. My primary rabbi for many years, was somebody who was descended from the the Rabbi Israel Salanta school of thought, and um, I just I just find it interesting that uh, we're we're meeting, and I I love everything you're saying and how you say it. Um, you've you sort of moved from the Hasidic avenue into the Musa, which um, I want to say is is a slightly sterner business, slightly more austere business than pure Hasidism. Do you see it that way or or not?
0: Um, I mean, I do think that in post-Holocaust America, um, a lot of descendants of the Hasidic lineage ended up studying in Jewish schools, which were more based on the Lithuanian style Mm -hmm. of which was decidedly non-Hasidic, as you yeah. said. And the Muster tradition arose in the Lithuanian communities and, yeah. and afterwards spread to other places. Um, so in a sense, the, the post-Holocaust America ended up becoming somewhat of a melting pot in terms of these traditions. So, you know, there are many people like like me, like my husband, who descend from Hasidic families, who the, the school that I went to growing up, the Hebrew Academy of Cleveland, was founded by the Deslers which was a direct line from the Mussar movement. Yes, yes. Um, and that, but on the other hand, you know, some of, the, some of the teachers that we had descended from the Hasidic tradition. So there was definitely a melding that yeah. happened after the war. But in a way, I, and I don't know, it could be that I am totally overfancying myself here. But in a way, I think that my Hasidic roots and my Hasidic blood, which is, as you said, less stern, like there's very much a focus on god loves everyone and we need to approach judaism with joy that that can al- almost be married to the musar tradition
1: that's exactly what you've done in your book Ruchi. That's, Thank that's that's part that's, of why it is it's, it's a beautiful blend and uh and it, it it reads ever so much more elegantly and invitingly it's not intimidating it's inviting so much more than than some of the classic musar texts that you and i have both studied
0: yeah. so uh, yeah. a- absolutely
1: you. you represent this this elegant hybrid of uh, the hasidic warmth along with the seriousness of the uh, of, of the the Musa um, almost a, a, a quantifying aspect of you know measuring yourself and your progress it's beautiful
0: i appreciate that thank you um, and I do think that in the world that we find ourselves in, it's so different from these traditions that started in the 17 and 1800s, where if you lived in a certain geographical location, that was the only influence you had access to, unless you were wealthy enough to travel throughout Europe and sort of pick up different, different disciplines and different traditions. But now in 2022, you know, we have the proverbial entire world at our fingertips. And I do see that many seekers of spirituality They'll take a little bit from Hasidism and a little bit from Musser and a little bit from, you know, um, the Lithuanian style, you know, commitment to study the, the so almost academic approach toward Judaism. And, and they'll kind of put them together in this new blend that didn't used to exist. You know, and, and I think there's something great to be said about that, because the truth is there are many paths up the mountain and we actually don't have to pick just one. Um, And I can learn from many different kinds of teachers who come from many different kinds of backgrounds. And and I myself and everybody else, we're all complex mixes of all these different types. And so it's, you know, it's very refreshing and exciting that there are so many different teachers to learn from and things to read and people to learn from. And and I without I, I didn't intend to create a blend in this book. I didn't even really think about it that much until you just asked me. Um, but when I think about it, that's just who I am because I am the recipient of, between my Hasidic grandparents, my Musser, you know, day school that I went to my husband who studied in a very Lithuanian yeshiva, you know, rabbinical school. He, he, he studied in a place called tells, which was originally in Lithuania, one of the most, you know, in the Where box. My
1: father studied.
0: Okay. Right. Right. So I guess by default, I'm sort of like this com- composite and and I think that's great. I think it's exciting.
1: Well, I, I would have done a lot better in Yeshiva if the person teaching me Musar would have been you rather than who it actually was. <laughs> Thank you.
0: But I appreciate
1: um that. I'm I'm only about a quarter of the way through all the things I wanted to discuss and hear you on, so we'll have to do it again. I
0: would uh, love if, that.
1: If that's okay with you, we'll proceed. But um, but but for right now, uh I, I think what we've try to do and succeed it to some extent is uh, help people um, realize that there is a huge exciting wonderful world of introspection through the magic of Musar that most people don't even dream of because our culture as I, I, I mentioned with the, the hotel room I think our culture discourages serious introspection. Our well, culture sure. encourages introspection about how do you feel about this, yeah, but not well, not a more uh, metric analysis of how am I doing in terms of becoming yeah. a better person.
0: Yeah, well, and also, I mean, part of it goes to you know the commercialization of our world. That um, it's easy to just turn on the TV and drown it out, and TV is created to sell entertainment. You know news is created to make money so there are so many forces that are working on us to do what's easy because that's what's being advertised to us because that's where people stand to make money the hard thing is to turn off that noise and to engage in this you know very quiet soft force that's waiting for us you know and and by the same token how i said that you know wisdom is so accessible and so available But by the same token, it's competing with so much nonsense that it does become hard to find. And this is what people tell me all the time. How did I never know that this wisdom existed? And that makes me sad. It really does. And that's why, like, of course, I want everybody to read this book because I think the world would be better off with Musser. But I want to make something inaccessible accessible. That's really what I'm trying to do because
1: it's just so valuable. It, it's exactly right. And, uh, and I, I don't think there's any question whatsoever that becoming um, adapted to a Musa approach in, in life and in your own um, self-development, it, it makes for a better marriage. It makes for a better family life. It makes for uh, better relationships with friends and astonishingly but undoubtedly in my view it makes for better relationships in business in in one's career as well. And so uh, the the book is a a remarkable gateway to a new life and uh, people who already own it and have studied it report exactly that and uh, people who yet have the exciting adventure awaiting them. Well, I, I envy you, is all I can say to you all. So, um, Ruchi, thanks so much.
0: My pleasure. This was a great and, conversation. Um, Thank
1: you. Uh, regards to your family and cool, uh, look forward to look forward to our next opportunity to continue exploring the, the wonderful world of Musar. Uh, You've, you've really, you've really opened a couple of doors for me as well over the last six months, I have to tell you. So uh, I appreciate that Um, until next time.
0: Okay. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Well, here we are back again. And as I think you could probably tell, I really enjoyed uh, chatting with Ruhi Koval about her book, soul construction. And, um, As I said earlier, I want to remind you that you can obtain this in in any way. It's so important. Uh, As I said, it it could be one of the most exciting adventures you've ever embarked upon. Uh, Fighting outside foes is challenging. There's no question about it. But fighting the inner foe, dominating yourself, extracting from yourself, a level of discipline and focus, a level of performance, a level of restraint and control, uh, the ability to impose limits on ourselves. All of these are the things that turn a person into a great person and a person that effortlessly exudes greatness, right? No great person ever has to thump his chest and say, I'm great. You don't have to do that right, in exactly the same way as a very wealthy person never ever has to advertise. He doesn't have to tell you he's wealthy. It comes across. And even if he's wearing an old pair of jeans and a t-shirt, if you're sensitive to it, you can tell. In the same way, somebody who has achieved inner greatness or is even on the journey towards achieving inner greatness radiates that perceptibly to people around they don't always know what they're feeling but they do feel that you are an unusual person you're somebody worth being involved in and connected with so uh the 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 real life implications of this are almost without limit and and the beautiful thing is that uh, with Ruhi's help we've made this available in in several different ways you might want to hear the book audibly instead of reading it you might be somebody who likes listening to the book you know maybe in the evening uh, when you're getting ready to retire maybe on a a, a train or a plane or a, or a bus or maybe while you're exercising well Ruhi herself took the trouble to read it so you hear in her voice you will hear the passion and commitment that comes through of helping you on this journey of what is known as musar so you can get it audibly uh you might want to download it and you can do that as well um just remember the website rabbi daniel dot com uh which you'll see and um the uh the other possibilities you might be in other countries right we've we've had a lot of fan mail from people around the world on this book and um there are Amazon has print on demand a program right so you can get this book and even if you're in another country it doesn't have to be shipped from the United States of America uh, you can have it in pretty much whatever well not every country but a lot of countries uh, in which I have pins in my map a lot of countries in which I am so proud to have happy warriors distributed in uh, in in a hundred different countries around the world. So, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I know I did, and I know I learned something. I came away with a renewed passion for this journey, and uh, it's something I think you will too. So, uh, until we get together again next week, I am your rabbi, and I am helping you focus on your five F's, and achieving this program of working on yourself through the magic of Musar, Uh, You will be doing everything you possibly could for achieving, growing, and enhancing your family, your finances, your faith, your friendships, and perhaps most of all, your physical fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lapp, and until next week, God bless.